Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. This week we look at two different areas, but both relating back to this current pandemic. Staying at home is not unfamiliar to everyone. Many disabled and chronically ill people have been navigating living at home long before the pandemic, and have been supporting each other through it. In the first half of the show, we hear from Julia Rose Buck on care work in disabled communities and bittersweet reflections on how non-disabled people are engaging in more community support in this moment. Second, we go back over 100 years to the influenza pandemic of 1919. What parallels exist between 1919 and today, and what lessons can we draw from the pandemic in 1919? We hear from amateur, local and social historian Liz Crash. But first, on care work in disabled communities and reflections on mutual aid in the pandemic. We hear from writer, student and facilitator Julia Rosebach. They wrote an article in March called Coronavirus Shows Care Work Isn't Just for Disabled Communities Anymore. They start in response to my question on some of the wisdom and care work prevalent in disabled communities. Care work as a concept in a disability activism context um, is only something that I really started thinking about and reading about and learning about within the last couple of years. Um the person that I've, the person whose work I've engaged with the most on this topic is um, Leah Lakshmi Piepshna Samarasinya, who I also uh, talk about in the article um, because she has written this really incredible book um, all about care work called uh, Dreaming Disability Justice. Um, and the way that her writing describes this care work is, I guess, about how it's it's not really something that disabled people are necessarily aware that we're doing. It's almost like this this thing that just happens um, where we're taking care of each other and offering support and resources and medication um, or meals to one another and it doesn't really feel like it doesn't really feel like there's a name for it it just feels like it's a process that we're all participating in 
just because, just because we want each other to survive. We want each other to live a bit longer and a bit more comfortable and feel a bit safer. Um, and so for me, I never really had a word for it or, or a term for it because it was just this thing that you did for your community. Um, and so reading Leah's writing about it was pretty transformative for me because I was like, oh, there's this, there's this name for this thing that I'm participating in and that my friends are participating in and it's connected to this wider thing of like this work that's so heavily undervalued by society and has been for such a long time and historically is like feminized and hidden and like not particularly um, not given very much weight. It's just, it's just something that people kind of take for granted. Um, And then suddenly it felt much bigger, this work that me and my community do with one another because it's like, oh, we're, we're actually doing something that's kind of revolutionary on a really small scale by taking care of each other um, in this way. And it's connected to all of these other um, intersections, all of these other communities who are also taking care of each other in these ways. Can, like, summarise mm. it that well yet because it still feels like a, a really complicated network of feelings for me Mm, for sure and yeah as you wrote about it comes from not receiving care not having like needs listened to in like an ableist society and other sorts of oppression as well yeah um and in this moment we're seeing the like sudden emergence of a lot of mutual aid groups which um, are offering support in the face of neglect from the state. Um, but I've, as you've written, the needs of disabled and chronically ill communities have long been neglected by ableism within mm-hmm. non-disabled communities. Could you talk about this sort of the sort of bittersweet um, feelings you have in this moment? Yeah. Um, so I, not long at all after um, everything became really, not long after it became known that everything was changing, um, I got invited to a Facebook group for the Melbourne inner north suburbs um, that had thousands of members and it was only created like a day or two earlier. And I was like, what? Like, like it it was so amazing to see to see this mobilization of people, but I was, I was kind of like, Oh, suddenly, suddenly there's this, um, movement happening of mutual aid for local communities. And I was just kind of thinking that for a lot of people, for myself, of my friends and the people I care for in my wider community, the conditions aren't new. Um, a lot of us, already spend our whole lives at home, work from home, study from home, and with nowhere near the amount of concessions that people are currently being given. Um, And so 
I guess, to experience life like that and have it feel so isolating and to mostly rely on either your close loved ones or your other disabled friends for um, community support to then be in the situation where able-bodied people are experiencing um, the conditions that you're used to, suddenly they're like, oh, this is really bad. This is like, this is not good at all. Um, we need to be taking care of each other. We need to mobilize and we need to organize and make sure that the vulnerable people in our communities are um, being taken care of in this time, which is all obviously really incredible. But for me and a lot of my friends were like, but this is the way that it's been for us for so long. Why is it, why is it only now that, um, that these support networks are being created? Um, like why, why is it that it took, uh, able-bodied people experiencing these things for them to finally get it and finally start trying to help us. Um, that that was pretty bittersweet, knowing that it was always possible for this kind of action to happen and for this kind of organisation to happen, not just within activist communities but within people who, like, otherwise don't necessarily participate in this kind of organisation to see thousands and thousands of people in my local community organised for me and around me. Um, it just, it kind of sucks that it took a global pandemic to see that kind of care work happening. Women on the line. Going back to sort of where you end the article in terms of a lot of really good questions around, yeah, whether non-disabled people might reflect more around accessibility and supporting their sick and disabled friends or not. And at the time of this interview, we see in Australia, some of the stay-at-home restrictions may be starting to be loosening. Has your th- how have your thoughts changed over the last month and a half around, yeah, if you're somewhat hopeful about this being an opening or? Um, I recently, a couple of weeks ago, I think, I'm not really sure because time feels so strange at the moment, but I read an article. So I think it's it's more of an essay by um, Joanna Hedfer, who who wrote an article um, a couple of years ago called Sick Woman Theory. And in this essay, um, they're talking about how historically we tend to place illness and revolution onto opposing ends of the spectrum where illness is seen as um, very focused around like inaction and being passive and um, being immobile and Revolution is all about, you know, movement and action and things like this. Um, And they're talking about seeing now this, like, this totally strange 
situation that we're all in um, and how people are organising from home, what that can tell us about um, the ways in which sick people and illness can be involved in revolution and in organising and how um, creating change from your bed is like something to be ashamed of and isn't the wrong way to be doing things and is actually really powerful as we've seen where we're all, you know, a lot of us are just in our bed who aren't necessarily disabled. Like that's just kind of the default place that a lot of people have to be. Um, and so I think that's a really nice and accessible way of thinking about it and kind of what my final questions in the article were getting towards, um, this idea that for so long sick people have been excluded from these large uh, movement-based conversations because we're often at home or in the margins. But, um, like, looking at what what kind of wisdom and, and what kind of um, resources and experiences we can now take from sick people who are used to organising at home within their communities, um, how we can take, how we can, you know, draw from that and and what that means for revolution and what that means for organising um, in ways that are accessible and sustainable for everybody. Yeah, that's a really great note um, to probably end on because I don't have any other questions other than is there anything else you'd like to add or close on? Um, I guess just encouraging people to talk to the sick and disabled people in your life about how much has actually changed since um, the pandemic. I know that a lot of friends of mine, um, when when all of the sorry, when a lot of able-bodied people were talking about having to work from home and being really bored and all of these things, and we were all kind of like, "We can teach you! Like we we know how to do this. We've been practicing. We're experts in like being chaotic in this specific way." Um, so, yeah, my my thing that I would like to reflect on is, like, maybe this is an opportunity where you can learn from your sick and disabled friends about surviving this kind of uncertainty um, and, yeah, just checking in with them as, as well because um, it's pretty scary and pretty... Um, full on for everybody um, I guess sick and disabled people just have this um, additional fear or I don't know I guess my, my takeaway is just to have conversations with your sick and disabled friends I guess yeah great um, yeah thank you so much for your time thank you for having me you were listening to Julia Vark. You can find a link to their article entitled 
coronavirus shows care work isn't just for disabled communities anymore in the Women on the Line show notes. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We now hear from amateur local and social historian Liz Crush, starting with a question on the social and political context of the 1919 pandemic. Okay, yeah. So one of the main reasons why the um, flu pandemic was so deadly was because of the First World War. Um, so because the Allied authorities were worried that um, talking about how bad the flu was would kind of depress the populace and bring down morale, um, basically all coverage of the flu in Allied countries in Europe, which is where the where we started, not necessarily where it originated, but where we started to really see it emerge as a threat, that was all censored. Um, and... The only, the first country in which it wasn't censored was Spain. So that's why it's often called Spanish flu. Um, because of that censorship and because of, yeah, the government's involved not wanting to let on how bad it was, a lot of places were not able to adequately prepare. Um, also because it was a war, obviously there was a lot of poverty, a lot of, there's always a lot of disease associated with war. Um, and you also saw some, of political organising. Um, so in Australia, um, Australia was a little bit later to get hit by the pandemic than a lot of other countries. We had a bit of warning. Um, and one of the reasons for that was just simply how long it took to get to Australia from the front. Um, but it did eventually come to Australia. And Australia at the time of World War One had um, a thing called the Walsham Powers Act. And the Wartime Powers Act was targeted at um, a few different left-wing political organisations, predominantly the industrial workers of the world and anti-conscription organising. Um, and that was extended a number of times. It was meant to stop um, when hostilities stopped, but it was still going well into 1919. Um, and the reason for that was that um, basically the government was like, well, we're still in a crisis. Like, this is like a war. A pandemic is like a war. So you see this kind of quite different use or response to the pandemic in different countries. So in the countries where it um, kind of hit earlier while the war was still going on, they kind of played down the threat um, because there was a fear that it would make people hopeless about their lives and about the prospect of winning the war. In Australia, it hit a bit later, past the end of the war, but it was beneficial to the government to extend that sense of crisis and use it to shut down left-wing political organising. So, um, and that is what they did. So there's um, also, of course, in the context of the White Australia policy, um, the White Australia policy was kind of a long, slow, ongoing, hostile environment. Um, it's not like everybody in Australia who was a non-Indigenous, non-white person was expelled upon federation. It was, just became a very, very hostile environment. So what you had was a large population of, um, still, of sugarcane workers, um, primarily Pacific Islanders, in Queensland, and they were devastated by flu. Um, so similar to um, Indigenous populations, also devastated by flu. Um, 
largely because of lack of appropriate health care and um, careless behaviour, like spreading of infection to them. But that was attributed to their culture. So very, very big uh, racial dimension to who was most affected by the flu, not just in Australia, but worldwide. So um, in New Zealand was had much worse effect from the flu. So they had much, much, much higher number of deaths and Maori people died at something like four times the rate of um, non-Maori Pākehā people. Um, in the Pacific Islands, so in uh, like Western Samoa, which is a New Zealand colony, uh, about a quarter of the population were killed by the flu, and close to 100% of the population had it. But back to Australia, yeah, in the mortality rate in some Indigenous communities was as high as 50%, um, and the rate of people who had been infected was, yeah, almost total, almost 100%. Women on the line. We now pick up where Liz talks about a chain of events in 1919 where authorities became complacent with a striking parallel to 2020. Liz focuses on the western suburbs of Melbourne. So you start to see in 1919, you start to see kind of the first wave of the influenza pandemic um, in early 1919, like January. That's when you start to see the first cases. Then start, cases started to die down after um, the implementation of some... Not as strict as we have now, but still pretty strict. Um, social distancing and quarantine regulations. So not a racialized quarantine, which is why it was effective. It was a quarantine. There was a quarantine on all returning soldiers. Um, in some parts of Australia, there were mask laws. Like um, a lot of places where people of gathering were shut. So like musicals were shut, theaters were shut. Um, yeah, big public events were shut. Um, and after that. After a couple of months of that, you saw a drop in the rates of deaths and new infections of flu, and people start to say, well, we really handled that well. Um, and everything opens up again. The local, you know, um, uh, emergency hospitals are reopened, so they're put back to work as schools. There's a lot of concern about schools um, in particular, so sending students back to school, but also reclaiming um, facilities that were in use as emergency hospitals. Um, so in Footscray, we had um, the Footscray Technical School, so now the VU Nicholson Street, that was used as an emergency hospital. And the education department was like, basically, we want that back. Um, and at that time, infections were dropping. People were like, yeah, cool. Congratulations, we've done it. Job well done. Everybody knew that every other country that had been hit by the flu had had two waves of it, and that the second wave was deadlier than the first. However, in Australia, because we were hit by it so late compared to other places, there was some thought, well, maybe that was the second wave of the flu that we got. Maybe we've already seen the worst of it. I mean, it's possible um, that it was always the same strain of the flu, but... Almost as soon as the restrictions were lifted, you started to see infections rise again dramatically. Um, most of the deaths in Australia um, from the flu um, the, in 1919 were in uh, April and May, so straight after the restrictions were lifted. Um, and, yeah, reading kind of 
local like health officers reports like you get this sense of like this real desperation um they're begging the government to let them reopen the emergency hospitals um and the government is like no women on the line in 1919 in Footscray the major spike in infections and fatalities um we saw after the influenza the restrictions were lifted however um something else that could have been behind that was just that factories were never really shut down so just as with today um there's a focus on shutting down those parts of life that are seen as inessential so social gatherings you know seeing your friends seeing your partner um what's not shut down is things that are seen as essential work like manufacturing so they certainly could have for example um shut down some of the you know ammunition works for a bit but they didn't so in about april 1919 we start to see local reporting that the ammunition factory in footscray is shut down not because they are in quarantine um but because there was an infection and they want to shut everything down but because there's simply not enough people who aren't sick to go to work um and same thing in sunshine at the harvester works the agricultural implement company there's simply not enough people who aren't sick to keep the factory running there's not a skeleton staff and and we see today quite a similar thing happen in almost the same location so brooklyn which is about a kilometer north of sunshine about 5k west of footscray is still um a major center for meat packing so meat processing um and those workers have recently um been found to be the center of like an outbreak of covid-19 um yeah and the reason for that is that and the reason that we've seen high infection rates in other meat packing plants internationally is primarily just that those workers are hyper vulnerable usually like there's some things about factory work that lend themselves to lends itself to infection like it's an enclosed location you often have people working very close together but the main factor is just that it's often workers who have to go to work sick um it's often migrant workers you know as well who are getting paid under the table who perhaps don't have access to welfare rights perhaps aren't even working legally um extremely vulnerable in that sense so that factories as a major site of infection is definitely something that's repeating. You were listening to local and social historian Liz Crash on the 1919 influenza pandemic with reflections on our current pandemic. You can find Liz tweeting from at asfarce, that's at A-S-F-A-R-C-E on Twitter. One of Liz's current projects is with Jinghua Chen. It's working on some of the more underground history of Footscray. I'll be returning to more of my interview with Liz Crash on the 1919 pandemic in a future episode of Women on the Line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program. So please send an email to womenontheline at gmail.com. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne on Kulin Nation's land and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Women on the Lane programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music is produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.